it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Searching for just the right job? Whether you're looking for full-time, part-time, or seasonal work, you can get started today. Amazon Jobs offer the whole package with great pay and flexible shifts that allow you to choose when and how much you work. Find a warehouse close to home and discover the role that works for you. To get your application started for an hourly job, go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is proud to be an equal opportunity employer. Hello and welcome to the Blue Room. Uh, I nearly said on Radio City Talk then, but that's not the case as things stand, given the uh, horrendous disease that's following the world round at the moment. Uh, I'm Dave Downey. Uh, very welcome to everybody this evening. Um, we are always available on a podcast, as you'll have gathered by now if you follow any of our social media. I am delighted to be joined tonight by Connor O'Neill, Paul McPartland and Hannah uh, Farrell. So do us a favour, guys, one by one, start with Hannah, say hello. <laughs> Paul. Hi Dave, I'm here. Uh, good. I'm Connor. Hi guys. So um in in sort of the lack of Everton news, and we do have a little bit of Everton news to talk uh, talk about, particularly some um some positive stuff as well to go through. Um we've sort of been talking about loads of different subjects on this show. Um, in, in particular, how people are getting on in quarantine, what they're doing. Sort of a lot of people's is, is Everton related, of course, watching former uh, games the clubs are putting out from um, years gone by, which has been really interesting to watch. We've done it ourselves with the inaugural. I don't know if any of you guys picked up on it. Last Monday, we did uh, Everton's 1 0 derby win on Hot Mike in 2004 when Lee Carsley scored the winner. That was good fun. We're doing a couple of more of them. I think there's one actually happening tonight with Matt. Uh, Gav Buckland and Les Roberts talking about uh, a game in the 70s. Paul, you'll probably, excuse me for assuming your age, will remember this far more fondly than any of us who were present yeah, tonight. It, but it, it was, was the game, it was the game against Borussia Mönchengladbach, wasn't it, the, uh, the, the, in the European Cup yeah. and the last the last 16. And of course, it also features uh, Andy Rankin, who I believe was the first English goalkeeper to make a save in a penalty shootout in, in a yeah. European competition. This is an incredible stat, that. Um, just, just sort of like give give everyone a little bit of a tease of what that game was and its importance to Evertonians, Paul. Yeah, well, obviously we'd won the league in '69-70, so we we're undertaking the European campaign in the '70-71 season, and you know, we felt you know we had a really good chance of it, of actually getting the trophy. In particular, because the final was due to be held at Wembley that year, and obviously playing in your home country is a massive advantage. And Wembley would have been packed to the rafters with 90,000 plus Evertonians, so you know, we went into that competition with high hopes. Starts off well against Kepwick, beat them over two legs, and then uh, in the next round, uh, when we came up against uh, Borussia Mönchengladbach, they had the famous Gunter Netzer in the side, who was quite an iconic figure from the 1970s, and it was a very, very tight game. Uh, we drew one all over in Mönchengladbach. It was tied at one each at Goodison Park in the second leg, went to extra time, and then it was the first season that the penalty shootouts had been introduced in European competition. So it went to penalties. I think Sandy Brown scored our final penalty to put his 1-0 up on the penalty shootouts, and then Andy Rankin pulled off a fabulous save to 
keep the advantage for Everton and we progress through to the quarterfinals against Panathinaikos and somehow or other how we didn't beat Panathinaikos remains one of the mysteries of, of, of Everton history we totally outplayed them at Goodison but they scored a goal on the breakaway we equalised in the last minute through David Johnson and then in the, replay, in the second leg at Panathinaikos uh, because they had the away goal and they were managed by Fenis Puskas from the famous Real Madrid team, they just sat back, did everything to disrupt Everton's flow, got a nil-nil result, and then they qualified for the semi-finals instead of us. And that was kind of the worst week in Everton's history because three days afterwards we lost to Liverpool in the semi-final of the FA Cup, and then that team started to uh, disappear and disintegrate. That's in, that is an incredible synopsis of what uh, you're going to be in store for tonight. But also, uh, Paul, I think it, <laughs> it indicates how sort of Everton did have a, a reputation that belies certainly my years watching them, um, where they tend to get to a certain stage of a competition, being the most talented team by an absolute mile and somehow managing to sort of cock it up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just so Everton, isn't it, Dave? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it just feels that way. Uh, Any time we get to a stage like that, I think we're actually the record holders for the most semi-final appearances in the FA Cup. We are, we are. You know, it's mind-blowing, isn't it, when you think about the team that we've had over the years and how much more we probably should have won. Oh, yeah, and I think that week in March 1971 is a crucial week in Everton history, both going out of the European Cup in the quarter-final stage, then losing the FA Cup semi-final at Old Trafford to Liverpool. And that kind of turned the tide against Everton in, in terms of you know what, what where we were as a club. Liverpool kind of went on from that, and, and we struggled to follow. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it seems to be that set the tone. Well, probably even before that, but that set the tone for what we went on to become and indeed are these days obviously nowhere near the quality of the side that we had back then or in the mid-80s but it still feels as if that sort of albatross is always around our neck as a team that's generally just cut above the rest until it actually comes to the final throws of actually getting the job done Yeah, I, I think you, you summarised our, our, our ethos exactly there Dave <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, um, more on that if you want to join in with that. Um, I think it'll be in play whilst this has just been released, but you can watch it back. Um, so if you go to Hot Mic or search for Hot Mic on any app on any phone you've got, Android or um, Apple, it'll allow you access to that. You just need to sign up for an account, follow the Blue Room, and you'll be able to watch that in its entirety. And, of course, Gav's on hand as well. Who knows? Well, he's probably up there with you, Paul, and his knowledge of uh, Everton through the years. So, um, <laughs> Very kind of you, Dave. It'll be well worth your time. Not at all, not at all. Um, yeah, so uh, going back to modern day, Everton, and they've announced quite a significant uh, move today in regards to more planning application in the sort of stadium project, not only at Bramley Moor, but at Goodison, the Goodison Legacy Project. Um, they've put planning permission in for that. And uh, I was just looking online a little bit earlier. I mean, it's really exciting for this L4 era, uh, area because you look at a lot of clubs. I'll come to you first, Connor, on this. You look at a lot of clubs uh, in modern day are accused of sort of talking the talk, but not necessarily walking the walk when it comes to community aspects. We know about Everton in the community and how good they are at what they do. Um, no, we don't need to go into any of that because it speaks for itself. The, the, the vital uh, services they provide, particularly at times like this, are, are invaluable um, to many people in L4. But this goes a stretch further, I think, Connor, because if you look at new stadiums when they've been built for teams in the modern era, they haven't really looked into leaving anything behind. I mean, if you, if you look at, I think it was Highbury, there's a load of new housing around there and flats and things like that. Um, other clubs as well don't particularly have a legacy that they've left behind in the areas where they up sticks. Now, this thing looks absolutely incredible. If you haven't seen the designs yet, they are on the club website. Um, and basically, I'll just read a little bit of the uh, the press release that they've given me today. They said they say combined, Bramley Moore, of course, and the Goodison Legacy Project, both developments would help kickstart the regeneration of the Northern Docklands and con- contribute a one billion boost to the city's reads, the city region's economy, creating up to 15,000 jobs, 1.4 million visitors, and deliver 237 million pounds of societal value. Um, that obviously is uh, Bramley Moore's included in that, but if you dig a little bit deeper in this at Goodison, where Goodison is right now, the application states that the scheme could include a health zone with a multi-purpose health and well-being centre, an education zone, a free school or a new facility for adults, potential to also build a new children's centre for community use. There'll be some green space there, and uh, the potential to use the current centre, I like this bit, 
the current centre circle as a lasting reminder of Goodison Park's footballing legacy and a mix-up of 173 houses and apartments. I mean, that, that sounds like, the you know, if you're going to do something as a football club to leave your landmark uh, in some sort of fitting way, Connor, this is exactly it. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely massive when you when you think of what the and of this afternoon because, you know, I live in the L4 area, pretty much a stone's throw from Goodison and while it was great and it was fantastic that these brand new more plans had been, you know, unveiled and they were pushing forwards and, and they were kind of picking up speed, there was the kind of almost fear factor from the local residents in, in the area as, well, what happens when Everton leave Goodison? You know, mm. businesses are going to suffer, you know, pubs, chippies are obviously going to suffer, you know, and also what, what happens then with Goodison Park? You know, is it just going to be kind of left to rot, sold off for housing, you know, just the first bid who comes along, they'll, they'll get their hands on it without any kind of real plan of what they want, etc. So I think, I think for Everton Football Club to come out and say what they've said today is, is fantastic. And I think, you know, hopefully it's, this is the start of something special for Goodison post Everton Football Club playing there. Yeah. I echo that thought, and I think as well, it's such an important thing, given given the L4 area, and you'll know yourself kind of living around there, in terms of th- those businesses are the lifeline of, of that area of the city. Those the, the local pubs, the local shops, everything on a match day must be, I mean, it, you know, you even could relate it to these days right now. There's no match days at Goodison at the moment, or at Anfield. These businesses must be really suffering right now. Um, so aside from the, the help that the, hopefully we know they're going to get from the government, this sort of announcement where they, it looks as if they're going to be looked after by what the club are going to do with this legacy idea, it must be quite sort of refreshing for them and sort of give them a little bit of a peace of mind beyond 2023. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's reassurance more than anything, Dave, I think, because I think you look at the you know, the current situation and, you know, only time will tell whether they can survive, a lot of the businesses can survive this. You know, we, we don't know the full impact of what, what this, these events I mean, are going to have, but... I think moving forward for them, you know, a lot of them will take solace in that, you know, something will remain of Goodison Park. Okay, it's not not going to have, you know, forty thousand people coming in every every other Saturday or you know every every other weekend, but there will be people there, there will be activity there, and it's not just going to be kind of right. That's it. Now we're finished. The gates are locked, and, and that's it. You know, not a, not giving a second thought because it, it, and it would be wrong for the club to do that because they've done so much in the local area. I mean, you know, you, you look now, I, you know. Uh, like the Royal Oak pub, you know, the, the free school that they built there, the building, you know, they've, they've got the Cruyff five side picture at the back of that, you know, they've, they've done so much in the local area that it would be a, it would have been a real shame if they kind of just said, well, you know what, enough's enough now, we're off to Bamley Mordach, we've got our own stadium and, you know, that's it now, see us all. It's a, it would have been a great shame if they would have went down that road because they've done so much work themselves to put, you know, to, you know, almost pillars of, you know, the pillars of the community to yeah. just, you know, kind of leave it behind and let people kind of, you know, let it rot. It would have been a great shame, and this will be reassurance. I think more than anything, that people will look at it and think, well, you know, at least there's some kind of plan there moving forward. It's not going to be like, oh, well, what's going to happen to it? Who's, who's going to get it? You know, is it are the club just going to sell it off to some, you know, property tycoon who's going to, you yeah. know, bulldoze the bulldoze it and build houses or flats or whatever? And I know that that's in the, the plan of mission, but not as kind of like as ruthless as what you see, like Harvey, for instance, where you know you wouldn't even know. If, have existed if you went past there nowadays. I think there's a plaque on the wall, which is, you know, when 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 you think of Arsenal Football Club, and I know a lot of my memories of Arsenal Football Club have all around the playing the Harvey. So it's a bit, that's a bit, you know, a bit cheap, a bit isn't it? Project, a bit cheap in my eyes, yeah, it is. So I think the fact that the club are working on doing something and cement themselves in the community, because you know, we've seen over the last couple of weeks what they they've been doing in the community, and it's, you know, it's been well highlighted. But I know from living, you know, in the local area that. You know, they're, they're doing stuff like that on a regular basis, almost a daily basis in some aspects. Um, they just don't always get praised in the, you know, the accolades that, that that way probably deserves. Yeah, I, I think Hannah kind of was sort of in the, in the process, and I, I often think of this when, for instance, a couple of weeks ago when they announced the, the Blue Family Project that they're going about now where they're getting local residents, making sure that they're okay, particularly the elderly um, local residents in the L4 area. They're helping them with shopping, they're helping them to pay bills, they're injecting plenty of cash to ensure that everybody in that community is looked after. You do feel over the years, and, and I think it's a little bit of a shallow thing to say, but I, I know for a fact people feel this way, that everything in the community is almost taken for granted. Like when, whenever I pick up a paper or whenever I look at my emails and the club has sent me a press release about everything in the community, 
it, it look, I look and think that doesn't feel like a news headline. It sticks out to me because I know how good they are. <laughs> Did you feel that that it feels a little bit of complacency like that? Definitely, I think, especially in the last three weeks or so, because if you look at the work that the Blue Mile and the Blue Family have been doing, I feel it's very much local news covers, and yeah. it's all the people you follow on Twitter involved with the clubs who are all talking about it and highlight it. But if you go out of like the Northwest like bubble, it doesn't seem to be getting the praise, and I and it's sad really because we are the only club who do that much. The work yeah. that we've been putting in, even even down to having like Ancelotti ringing people or having Sharpie mm-hmm. ringing old fans, it like they go above and beyond, and it does seem to be the case. Unless you were involved in the club or following what they're doing, you wouldn't be aware of these actions. But then when you've got one of your, I suppose you one of your top six sides doing it, it makes global news. The videos are plastered everywhere. They're in every bulletin and that. So I do completely agree that they don't get the praise that they deserve at all unless you are involved in the club and actively looking for this information. Well, hold that thought because that, that ties into one of the issues we're going to get on and discuss in a moment or two, and that is Liverpool's controversial furloughing and then unfurloughing of some of their employees. Um, now, obviously, it's it's difficult not to be partisan when we're talking about our biggest rivals, but we will get on to try and talk about that in a little bit more of a objective way uh, and, and the U-turn. But like just referring that back to what you said, Hannah, I've seen a hell of a lot of praise go to Liverpool for essentially a mistake that they made in the first place. I think that's really interesting um, when you're looking at it from our side of the park. The, well, here we have this sort of bastion of hope and, and sort of services that are just lifelines for people in the area. Yet when Liverpool took that dreadful decision, in my opinion anyway, to furlough their staff and then to go back on it, the going back on it seems to have got more praise than yeah. if they hadn't have done anything in the first place. It's absolutely meant more that they're getting these out to have done something great now for doing it. They still did it. And if it didn't have got the publicity and have the likes of Jamie Carragher and people coming out saying how disgraceful it was, it wouldn't have been overturned. They haven't mm. come to the senses. It's because they were getting absolutely destroyed for it. That's the only reason they've brought it back. They haven't fought about it at all. But they're saying, oh, we made the wrong judgment. It's because they were getting slaughtered by their own fans and their own ex-players that it was too damaging to them. They haven't sat there and had to change a heart at all. It's just because of that impact it was having. And I think in this instance as well, Connor, people have short memories with sort of the FSG era, if you like, since 2010, because a lot of fans were critical of them when they first come in for everything that happened on the pitch with the appointment of Dal Gleeson, then he had the Hodgson issues and stuff like that. Um, it, look, it's very easy, us, us four as football fans know, it's very, very easy to just be so blinkered and, and only focus on things that go on on the pitch. But they, they have had their issues like that where they've had to backtrack. I mean, if you, you just look at a couple of other examples when they had the ticket prices when Liverpool fans rightfully and brilliantly did that walkout on the 77th minute a few years ago uh, in protest the, to the ticket prices being upped by FSG. And then if you look at when they tried to copyright, which I thought was really funny, they tried to copyright the name of the city. Um, <laughs> Which was which was just crazy. Uh, and again, well, they didn't much as so much backtrack, but they they lost it. And I think I actually have some sympathy with Peter Moore, their chief chief executive, because he seems to be the one who has to put all these fires out when they happen. And then now we've had this, where again he's been at the forefront of it, sort of apologising and saying that they didn't quite understand and things like that. At the end of the day, I think that's what you see with the disparity of a of a of a group that owns a football club that's based in a completely different country. That come here maybe two or three times a season. It 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 makes me feel quite fortunate as an Evertonian that those values that we hold so dear as sort of a working class background in this city and everything that we do with Everton in the community, it, it does sort of it makes you gives you some solace to use your phrase before Connor that Everton don't do these sort of things, thankfully. Yeah, I mean the whole the whole furlough issue was just quite remarkable, really, wasn't it? I think. Yeah. You know, when it got announced on, on Saturday that they kind of they took the steps, it was you know a bit mind blown really. Like you'd seen them make the steps. I think what 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 got me especially was you'd seen the, the backlash that Tottenham and Newcastle had yeah, yeah. from doing it a couple of days before. So it wasn't even like they were the kind of first first group to do it, and it was like oh well, you know they they kind of be, be been brave almost and done it, and the backlash has come. They'd seen two clubs absolutely slaughtered. Um, 
for doing it and then still go out and do it. But I mean, I think for me that the problem, the problem Liverpool have got in, in the sense of what what they've got is, you know, they've got three people, you know, the very very top, you know, John Henry and Ed Gordon and uh, the other guy who's on who's uh, the, uh, on the board, Tom Werner. Uh, they're just ruthless businessmen. They're just yeah. ruthless businessmen, and that, you know, that that at the end of the day, they're in business. It's a business, you know, they're in business to make money, save money, and do everything they can to protect the money, to protect their business and their, their profits. Regardless of who they hear, you know, you look at the Glazers at Manchester United, you look at, you know, a lot of other clubs, and don't get me wrong, I think, you know, like some Man City and Man United coming out so quick after Liverpool, saying that they were failing staff and them just want to say, no, we're not doing that, you know, let's be honest, that was a PR move to, oh, to look good, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, Manchester City don't think I'll get that statement until quick enough that they were failing staff. <laughs> um, so, so I, I think, you know, that was the thing that kind of got me off. They were getting praised for a whole lot. This is the PR move. This still look good, you know. But I think Liverpool. I think the, the issue with Liverpool as well. And I think the, the one issue that they have got is they they got very they got good at doing a lot of the stuff that haven't kind of taken the strides. So, and I think that was when they pointed in. And you'll probably know they Tony Barrett is yeah. the kind of club, you know. Yeah. I think he kind of come into the in the in the kind of aftermath of the, the ticket debacle, the the seventy seven pound ticket, where I think they kind of realised they had to bring someone in of local kind of. Yeah, a local it, for me. Heart and minds thing, Connor, wasn't it? It was, yeah. it was, um, it was to sort of give the public perception that they hadn't, they now had a tangible link between fan and club. Um, and yeah, I mean, Tony's role, I think, there's always been a bit of a strange one for me. Um, he's a, he's a crack and fell, an absolutely brilliant journalist. But when he took it, I have to admit, I really raised my eyebrows. Look, he's a diehard Liverpool fan and has been since he was a baby. He's not going to pass up a chance to work for the club that he loves. I completely get that. But the, the role in which they give him, I think, was a really interesting one because, essentially, it looked to me like he was there to be the person to have all of that mud thrown at. Yeah, well, I think that, and I think that, that's the big issue, though, with this day because I think, and a lot of some of the other instances that we've seen recently with Liverpool and that, that kind of the stuff that goes is, is his level is done quite well. You know, they, they kind of, and I think, I think he's actually openly admitted I might be wrong, but I think he actually admitted that he's kind of used them in the community and these bad back to as a bit of a, a bit of a kind of, you know, blueprint almost and following as if to say, well, you know, you look what they've done. We should be doing this as well. You know, we should be pushing through bank collections and stuff like that. I think ultimately where Liverpool really hit the, the kind of brick wall is when them big, big decisions start getting made by you know, them three fellas in Boston, basically. They were ruthless businessmen who don't care about the local community and are just making them decisions and leaving the likes of people on the, you know, the kind of the lower level executive staff to, to pick up the flack because yeah. that's exactly what's happened over the last, you know, certainly over the weekend. And, you know, I think it was, it was, there's a report by uh, James Pearson in the Athletic where he kind of outlines that Alice and, uh, you know, he's a more basically on the charm offensive uh, yeah. over the weekend and they were phoning around people, you know, kind of saying what, well, basically trying to read between the lines, basically trying to build a case up to go back to FSG and say, look, you've got to change your mind here. We're, we're getting absolutely battered. You know, it's, it's kind yeah. of, so I think the fail, whole fail on issue was just one of pure amazement. And I think my, I actually texted a mate uh, last week when Newcastle, because Newcastle the first week went under Mike Ashley, which I don't think was a surprise to anyone, you know. But I actually texted the mate and said, this will be the start of the snowball now, because now one's done it, I've been to see if we'll just follow suit. And, you know, right on cue, I think Tottenham followed, Norwich have done it, Bournemouth have done it, you know, Liverpool have done it. Um, and now I think the others are just too scared to do it because of the backlash that they face. So I think the only good thing I would say with it all is that I think the whole issue with Liverpool and what's being brought about from it will probably protect other people at the football clubs because they will be football clubs now scared to put staff on fail only because of the backlash they will face. Yeah, and some excellent points there. And I think as long as sort of that is heeded by other football clubs, that that should be the good that comes from a club the size of, of doing this, like Liverpool, who was second, I think, in the Premier League in regards to um, net profit for the last account. Yeah, interestingly enough, Everton are bottom of that league. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> £108 million pound loss. Uh, and look, lo and behold, look, I don't want to act as if Everton has some, give them some sort of martyrdom here, but if they're announcing that they don't plan on furloughing any of their staff, given that situation of, of a lack of profit, I think we, we sort of doff our cap to them. And to the Liverpool fans and former players, who just refused to stand for this. It was heartwarming. It was reinvigorating to see our city and the people in our city sort of stand up to that very sort of um, 
business-like, ruthless, brutal decision, in my opinion. But, Paul, I just want to discuss now um, the whole concept of furlough in, in regards to Spurs, because, like Connor said there, Liverpool, we've obviously seen this because it's on our doorstep that they've picked up most of the headlines here. But Spurs seem to me to be much, much worse, considering the fact that a week ago, their chief executive, Daniel Levy, comes out and says that he's on a £4 million salary a year, and he's, he's basically the highest-paid person at Spurs, and then has paid himself a three million pound bonus. Now, doing the maths on this, and I've seen a few people work out what this means. Their fellow one of staff at, at Spurs actually totals, if you do it over that three month period, something similar to that three million pound bonus that he's decided to pay himself. I mean, that is a different kind of wrong right there, isn't it? Oh, 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 absolutely, Dave. I mean, it, I think Tottenham and you know, Mr. Levy in particular are quite renowned for you know the the financial ruthlessness and putting profit before any other accountability to you know to the fans or, or, or the wider game in general. Yeah, I, I think Tottenham is always an example of the, of the type of club you don't want to be, you don't want to follow in terms of uh, your business practices. And I think in terms of Liverpool being bracketed in the same sort of group as the likes of Daniel Levy with Tottenham really was extremely negative and poor publicity for them. I'm sure that was part of the reason behind them sort of retracting that decision as well. I think Tottenham are, you hope Tottenham are, are a unique unique case, but I just have the feeling that other chairman of clubs, other owners, look at what Daniel Levy does and then make a decision that, well, if he's got away with it, should we get away with that as well? I think quite often they're quite happy to sit back and let him make the first move and then follow, hoping that the spotlight doesn't shine on them to the same extent it might shine on, on Daniel Levy. But you know, in terms of their potential club owners, you, you're just glad that you know, Daniel Levy has no influence over Everton whatsoever. He's yeah. not in charge of the club at all. And going back to one or two points just made before there, but by Hannah and Connor, I think Liverpool have actually, he almost, the cynic in me thinks he did this furloughing deliberately and retracted it because they thought they'd get more, more publicity that way. And to an extent, it's worked like, it's worked like that. And, uh, when you get the likes of Gary Lineker posting on his Twitter account what a great decision was by Liverpool to go back on their original decision, you're there thinking, well, what about, what about the first decision, Gary? You know, why didn't you call them out on the first decision? So, uh, I, I, I thought that was quite bizarre, really. And you made the point there as well, Dave, that, uh, I think, you know, Although we, we we often have our disagreements with the Red supporting contingents in our city, undoubtedly their reaction to the club's decision was a hundred percent of like reaction, and I totally applaud them for that. And you know, they put pressure on the club, they got things changed, and you know, much though we have our disagreements with them, you have to respect them. You have to respect them for doing that. And the point that Connor made before as well about the owners living on a separate continent, not being aware of what's going on in the city, I think that is a really, really fair point as well. At least Mr. Mashiri has his critics from time to time, but he's there at home games, he understands the club, he speaks with the fans, and he gets a sense of what Everton is about. Everton is about Everton, it's not about the profits on a balance sheet. Spot on. Couldn't agree with more, and you, you put it really well there, Paul. Um, I do want to move away and get onto some, some actual football news, and some of this is, <laughs> might, might seem a little bit dated, um, but I still think they're really important topics to discuss. Um, in recent days, or maybe in excess of a week ago, actually, but um, as far as I know on our content, which I listen to all of it anyway, so I should know, uh, we haven't discussed any of these topics. So uh, I'll come back to you first on this one, Paul. Um, yeah. Some interesting and conflicting stories on Bernard and his future at the club. Uh, I seen one quite bizarre headline that suggested that Carlo Ancelotti likes him, but he's willing to listen to offers. Um, I've, I've seen that actually dumbed down a little bit by, I think Bernard himself actually said that he, about how much he loves life at Everton and things like that. But nonetheless, um, it gives us a chance to talk about him in particular because I think he's a player that very easily... Um, sort of hyped up because he, he has that sort of flair, he's that kind of impact player. But you look at his statistics and you know, you, you can, if you were to label that on a different player in our squad, i.e. maybe Theo Walcott, you'd be looking at, some, looking at something like that and thinking wow, is this guy actually doing enough for us as a player? It's different with Bernard because I think he offers a lot more and a lot of different things to the team. But say if the right offer come along, would you be interested in cashing in on someone like him? I think if the right offer comes in, you have to you have to consider for for every player in, in terms of you know uh, if the profit outweighs what the what the player contributes to the team, then you have to consider that. And I agree with you there, Dave. I think Bernard 
I think I'd use the phrase as flattered to deceive. When he, when he's yep. good, he yep. looks very good. But his, if you compare, you mentioned at the start of our conversation about the 84, 85 team. <laughs> you know, uh, the midfielders in that team, like Travis Steve and Kevin Sheedy, both got double figures in terms of goals that they contributed to the title winning season. Bernard's goal output, I think, is really, really underwhelming. And you know, it's even worse than Theo Walcott, who, who you referred to there as well. So, I think next season really is a make-or-break season for Bernard. Uh, his away form, uh, we talked on the show about it before, his away form has been particularly uh, frustrating at times because he's obviously such a talented player. Now, now whether there's a case that we haven't fully integrated in, in, into the playing system, whether Ancelotti can get the best out of him, I don't know. But I think the player we thought we were getting and the player we see on a week-to-week basis, and I don't know if Connor or, or Hannah would agree with that, it's different. I think, I think quite often, if, you, if you're a Brazilian, maybe the expectations are raised too much. Maybe if you bought from Belarus, you wouldn't be on the same same expectation level from the fans. Yeah. But for, for my personal view, I love him when he's on the pitch. He plays really well, but at times to me, he just disappears from the games. And if a suitable offer came in, you have to consider. You have to consider that. Hannah, respond to that. How do you feel about Bernard? So, if you listen to, I've spoke on here in the past saying how much I rate him so much as a player, and I really do. I'd say up to about probably the Arsenal game, he was somebody who I was week in, week out, getting frustrated that he wasn't on the starting lineup. I think it's only a handful of times that he has been this season, or that he hasn't played a full game. And I've always been really frustrated because in my eyes, I thought he always looked fierce. I thought he was a player who could handle the 90 minutes. I thought what he brought in terms of he was using his physique and uh, to get through. And when you compare the amount of pitch covered that he did rather than Theo, then I thought he was, like, I couldn't stop singing his praises. But then when you, when you think about it, if you look at his statistics, well, he's got three goals. It, he's not done anything unbelievable and I think it, it is disappointing and I think that highlights how we have got a lot of underwhelming players at the moment because for, like for example I was clinging on to him for ages saying yeah. how much I loved seeing him play so I think that highlights a bigger problem of having underwhelming players but I I wouldn't want to lose him just yet I think that when he has played well he's been one of the best players on the pitch like I remember saying that I'd put him in the four that I always wanted to start with Holgate and DCL and Richarlison. Like, that's how confident I've been in him in the past. So I think it would be a real shame to lose him, to be honest. I sort of agree with that, Connor, with the, the sort of make or break shell from Hannah there, because it feels as if that first season we just saw, we saw sparkles of it. I mean, I, I went to Leicester away when Sigerson scored that absolute worldy, <laughs> and he just ran the show that day. He was absolutely superb. Uh, he put in, a, he just ripped the thing to the less defenders and put a ball into Richarlison when he scored. And that to me, maybe, maybe I held him on a pedestal too much after that game, but it's, it's such a weird one because I think it, it may be Paul saying he flatters to deceive. I think it's probably the line of best fit with him because I look at him sometimes. I think his touch is exquisite. I think some of the movements he's got is brilliant and he's always trying to link up play and he's always trying to get it on the front foot. And, that's seldom been a thing at Everton in recent years. We haven't had enough players to do that. But then, I, and then, I, but then I look at the end product and I look at like his, his goal scoring stats, which are quite poor. I look at his assists, which are nowhere near enough. And and I think how how can I how can I reconcile that when I'm looking at him? He's a very very difficult player. I I I find to judge. Um, that make or break type of scenario for next season probably feels the most adequate to me because. Look, here's a player that we got on a free. He's obviously on a big payday, given the fact that it was a free. Is he someone the club would look at? Uh, and look, we're going to have to start making some money somewhere soon, aren't we? We're looking at those account statistics uh, and given the you know, well, the perilously close uh, FFP situation that we found ourselves in at the last AGM that they were talking about. What, what, what are your thoughts towards him? I think he's one of them. I think you, you kind of... Every time you start to doubt him, or you think, oh, you know, he doesn't really do much yet, he puts in a performance where you think, oh, bloody hell, he's great there, you know, or he, he, he does stuff that leaves you on the edge of your seat, but then I think you look at it and think, well, that's one every four games, one every, you know, five games. We need a lot more than that. We need, we need more consistency. I think, you know, I, I, I was talking to a mate of mine a week about him, and he was kind of saying, oh, you know, he's not, he's not the type of player you play away from home. He's like, you know, I, I just don't think he offers not away from home. And, and 
when you think when you start saying stuff, when you start saying stuff like that about players, they've either got to be great to the point of they can do absolutely something else and nothing, you know, off the off the top of their heads, or you kind of got to say, well, actually, we've got to cut our losses here and just kind of, you know, move on and 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 work for. But I think the problem with Bernard and I think a lot of other players is is Everton squad isn't massive. It's not big. It's not exactly overflowing with talent. Yeah. So if they do want to start getting into plays like, you know, Walcott, as much as we all criticise and moan, you know, Obi's coming for a fair bit of criticism, um, Bernard, others, you've got to have people coming in, ready placements to come in because we can't afford to start losing players and, and getting into plays and not having them to come in because the squad's not exactly, you know, in its best, the best condition it can be. Mm. Now, that, that point's a really interesting one, I think, Paul, about uh, how in away games he's not the type of player you want on the pitch in away games. And that that's I do get that feel. I look at that and think, yeah, there's, there's something in that because ideally I actually think he, he's somebody who loves to be on the ball. He loves to have loads of touches on the ball. He loves to play neat one-twos with Luka Dean. We know how much that partnership flourished in his first season. But away from home, obviously, you, you don't get that much time on the ball. You don't get the ball in the final third of the pitch. Well, certainly Everton don't anyway. Anywhere near as much as you'd like to see. So the, the role that he plays at Everton is quite a peculiar one and one that I don't think he's fully settled into ever since he, he came here. We've just seen it in fits and starts. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, Dave. And of course, you know, he, he, he's... He starts off as Silvers as manager, then he had Duncan for a short time, now he's got Carlo and Chelossi. So, I mean, that must take a bit of adjustment from his point of view as well. You referred there to that game against Leicester, you know, where he was on fire that day, you know, absolutely Leicester couldn't handle him. And maybe he set the bar a bit too high in terms of how we're going to judge his future performances, uh, because if he could maintain that level of output every week, then what a player he would be. I agree with what Hannah was saying as well. I, I think there are also sort of concerns about his fitness. I mean, to me, he sometimes struggles to last the 90 minutes. Uh, it's been on towards the 26, 27 now, has he? I think that's how old he is, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, let me check that. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, 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 so, the thing so, is, but, go on. Yeah, so, so I'm just thinking at that age... 27, of, yeah, 27. So you'd be 28 at the end of next season and, and you, you, you kind of get into a decision time there. I mean, Colin made the point before, there's no point in him going if you're not going to be placing with something better. Uh, and that, that is always a factor because we brought too many players into the club over the years who are no better than the players that have left. And really, if we're going to be on an upward curve in terms of Everton, we need to be replacing our better players with even better players. That would be the only way to go forward. Uh, but yeah, I agree, but no, but what Evan said about Bernard on his day he's an absolute pleasure to watch sometimes you sit there you just admire his skill I think he suffered to some extent this season by Dini's dropping and fall and maybe that's been a factor in him not getting the service the partnership he had going with Dini last season maybe that's been he suffered from that as well I mean no one's questioning the fact he's a good player I think what we're questioning is the level of consistency the level of performance and for the midfield, the modern midfield player if you're not contributing goals you've got to be contributing assists and I think on both of those both of those stats is a question mark against him Hannah he's a player that's substituted quite a lot when he, when he starts it seems to be him that gets the hook on 70 maybe 60 odd minutes 70 minutes is there a fitness issue with him do you think because he doesn't. He's not the most athletic, and for his size, he's not the quickest. He's got really quick feet, but he's not lightning quick. And I, I just wonder: have, have we seen him at his best? Because and we interviewed Tim Vickery, um, South American football expert, yeah, yeah, when yeah. he when he first came in, and he was sort of raving about him when he could pull out all the stops. He was talking about how he got in Brazil Brazil's team four or five years ago. And was a real treat to watch. Everybody loved him, become one of the first names on the team sheet. And then it sort of started to subside a little bit. And I'm just wondering, is is fitness an issue with him? Because he does get substituted a hell of a lot of times in our games. Yeah, this you know what, this is something I thought started to think about over the last couple of months because for me, when he was coming in to I suppose a good like streak of playing it's always the case that he got subs and I started to get frustrated because I was like, but he doesn't look fatigued. I didn't think at all. But then when you think back on what you just said, like his pace and things like that, well, I suppose for somebody of his size that it is an area which is lacking. And it, when he when he's got he has a good game, he does cover some of the pitch. But when you look at the, his stats, he doesn't have enough assists and stuff like that. So maybe it is the fact that fitness is coming into it. But... It, 
it's surely that can only be the only factor, really, because it is, you expect him to get subs, you know, when it gets to 60 minutes in a game, if he's been on the pitch, that he is probably the top of the list in Ancelotti's eyes to sub. And I didn't feel like he looks like he's struggling for that length of the game. So I've always found it quite confusing, to be honest. But that was something I was getting really frustrated with because I didn't understand why he was always the first player to be taken off. Because when it's that thing, when he's having a good game, he is such a pleasure to watch. But it's never for the full 90 minutes, which I've always found really confusing. Yeah, and, and great points. And, and I think it's sort of easy to think that maybe is he somebody you put on the pitch later on in the game, an impact player? I mean, it's kind of I, can't, I didn't see him as an impact player at all. And yeah. I think, was it the, I think, was it the Palace game where he started? And I th- might be wrong there. And from, he has a brilliant game starting. So it's always frustrated me that he never seems to be a 90 minute player. And I, that might be part of the reason why is, Hasn't got enough to show against his name for things he's done this season. Like, what, it's three goals, is it? Which, surprisingly, is actually, like, our fourth top goal scorer, which is crazy. Yeah, like, literally, got, what, 30, two players on 13 and then him on three. Like, yeah, it's yeah. absolutely crazy. But then maybe that is because he's not being played for long enough or he's expected to be this impact player or something. Maybe that's what's been sort of dragging him down in a way mm. and making it look like he hasn't been delivering to his best this season. Well, I'm just looking at the stats here um, in his career stats. So for us, his record, the total record is 58 games, five goals and six assists in total, which obviously no one near good enough really. That's... That's one in five for either or a goal or an assist around about that. Um, Shakhtar, who was his last club before us, 157 games, 28 goals and 35 assists. So that's what, that's, that's almost one in two that he's providing a goal or an assist. Um, he had that spell, Connor, didn't he? After, well, just before we signed him, he hadn't played football for quite some time. It was four or five months, wasn't it? And maybe that rhythm sort of just, I mean, I think we're maybe giving him too much credit if we say two years on that he's still sort of struggling to recapture that sort of fitness and form. But, I mean, is it a, is it a Premier League thing for you? Because I don't look at him sometimes and think, oh, well, even though he's very slight, he doesn't seem to struggle physically. I mean, he was uh, the club itself highlighted that really hilarious incident down at Stamford Bridge when he sort of just stood there up to Rudiger and Rudiger threw himself on the floor. I mean, is 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 there something up with that? Maybe is there a Premier League thing? He's not getting as much chances, or is it simply that he's come to Everton? <laughs> I think I think it's a case of a bit of both. To be honest, I think initially it probably started out as a Premier League thing, you know, adjusting to the pace. Power especially haven't played no more, but I think now it's just it's, it's managers, isn't it? I think you know yeah. it's great point. It's it's managers. I think you know it's always quite telling, isn't it? When you you know <laughs> certainly in Everton football club for the last couple of years, is we've had that many managers that when certain players don't get a look in under like three managers, because you then start to think, well, actually it must be something to do with the player here or what he can offer. Because for one manager not to fancy, he can just be bad luck. You know, he, he might not fit their style of play, what they want to do, etc. But when two or three start looking or coming in and saying, well, actually, you know, you're on the bench or you're not really a regular starting or pushing for the police, then I think you, you need to start looking to play because there's much more of them going on deeper than, than what just, you know, a simple case of it's time to adjust, he doesn't fit the system. There's much more going on. And I think the fact that, you know, Carl Ancelotti is seemingly kind of not a marked, but I'd certainly from what you look at team selections as a first three starts on a week by week basis. It kind of speaks volumes because, you know, if anything, he kind of had the chance, Bernard, to, to stake a claim once Marco Silva left the club and, and things were kind of moving fresh. Yeah, I mean, that that's one of the things for me as well, Paul, that, that, that's frustrated me with certain players. I mean, when, when Gomez, I was quite vocal about this, when Gomez come back in that Arsenal game as a substitute, he looked like a breath of fresh air, 45 minutes. Um, you know, half an hour, wasn't it? He, he looked exceptional and, and just exactly what we've been missing. But it made me sort of stand that up against how sort of average, quite passive and blasé a lot of the rest of the team have been in that time since you've been away. And I think that's actually quite shameful. And add to the fact that you've just got one of the greatest managers the, that the game's ever seen. Why hasn't there been from particularly, maybe Bernard, who's a little bit further down the list, but I'm thinking Sigurdsson in my head. I'm thinking maybe Tom Davis, Schneiderlin, 
yes, we picked up those results, but the, the good performances were few and far between in Ancelotti's early early games. And I, I look at that and I think, surely that highlights the as much as we criticise the the several managers we've had in charge over recent years, it shows you that these players actually really do need to be held account when they when even Ancelotti can't get a kick out of them or when they can't pull the socks up and try and put in a performance with a manager like that watching over them and sort of playing for their Everton futures, they can't quite up their game. That 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 is quite sort of it's an indictment on them all, really, isn't it? Many of them, anyway. It's also very worrying, Dave, isn't it? You know, yeah. I, I, I think as well that um, midfield is obviously an area in the FC at the moment where we, we are desperately underperforming, we are desperately under strength. On paper, the midfield looks quite strong. What's happened to Sigson this season is one of the mysteries of modern football. I know he's had a few changes of position. Maybe he's playing in a different role, a deeper role. But, you know, he scored one league goal all season. He hasn't scored from a set piece all season. Last season, he scored 13, 14 goals. So you wonder why there's been such a rapid decline there in his output. Morgan Snyder, well, you know, apart from the first few months under Ron Koeman, his... His, his his commitment to the club, his performance to the club have been way below the standard expected. Tom Davis, you know, we've been hoping for two, three years now that he's finally going to come, come good and develop on that performance against Manchester City three years ago, but he just doesn't seem to develop. Now, now whether that's because of the club struggling, because the England under-21 under seems to rate him really highly. He he captains at England under-21s. A.D. Boothroyd is always singing his praises, so I, I, I'm not quite sure what's gone on there. But I think your original point is true. These players have performed now, or underperformed, under four or five different managers, and it's, it, it gets to a decision time now. How much manoeuvrability Ancelotti has in the markets, I don't know, but certainly you would be quite heartened to see one or two of those players being moved out, and one or two of these so-called rumoured players coming to Everson, such as James Rodriguez and Gareth Bale, in an ideal world, that would be super, wouldn't it? But I set no store by that whatsoever. But realistically... They're the type of players that we want. Because when you watch Gomez, OK, he's got no pace, but he just oozes class on the ball. He can pick a pass out. He doesn't get caught in possession. And you need a player like that to move the side on. Yeah, I completely agree. And and that game, to me, Hannah, was one that, you know, it really hammered home how much of a show we've been for quite some time. And the, the miraculous job Ancelotti and just before him, Duncan Ferguson, did. Because when Gomez come on that game, and I know he was... He had a difficult time, a really difficult time at Stamford Bridge along with everybody else, but that that particular initial surge of adrenaline from him in that Arsenal game, picking out forward passes like he'd never been away, um, it, it made me feel quite depressed about the rest of the team. Um, not all of them, of course, because there have been shining lights, as we know, the front two to begin with, really. But beyond that, there haven't been too many performances where you thought, Wow, this this fellow's really kicking on. He's really been inspired by Ancelotti, and, and quite clearly, given Ancelotti's acumen and his history and his CV, it's not down to him. It's it's down to these players to start showing something. Definitely, and I agree with what you said there. Like it made you that game made you feel excited because you had not back at the same time, embarrassed that it's all you've got to offer of a player who's came back from an awful injury that quick, looks for one of the fittest on the pitch by that point, but also, as you said, who's in the most class. And I think the only other player, apart from the front two, who you could put in that category, who have been really trying to impress Ancelotti is Holgate. I think he's the only one who's really stood out this season for being amazing, but apart from anybody else, I feel like Somebody like Gomez coming back into the team highlighted how everybody else is. I said the word before, but I use it again. is underwhelming. The likes of Tom Davies, people like that, and even even like Schneiderlin. Okay, he had like a good like what three weeks where he was not as bad as usual. But I think that's the only compliment you can give him is not as bad as usual. So I think once that like honeymoon phase of Ancelotti, I think what we had it was like the first four weeks. Everybody, apart from, I'd say, Sigerson, was really showcasing the best they've had. But then, as the weeks went on and Gomez coming back into the side, you realised that that really, like, that disappeared quite quickly. And how a lot of our players don't look fit enough to be on the pitch because the fact for him to come onto that pitch looking as 
calm and in such his fitness so good in comparison to the others to me it's like a really big way to call that there's something massively wrong especially with that midfield that he he, he shouldn't he shouldn't have been such a dominant person in that game at all he should have just been getting feeded back in so what you said there with depressing definitely definitely couldn't agree more with that Right, guys, we'll leave it there. Uh, I think we've done almost an hour on tonight's show. Uh, thanks so much for your input, Connor, Hannah and Paul. Uh, there's plenty going day, day, Can I just say one positive thing what? before we finish? Yeah. Because with the season not being finished now, it means Everson still hold the record for being the earliest champions because we won the title on the 1st of April 1970 and we stopped Liverpool from taking that record away from us. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned that stuff. We, we, we also have the record over the war period as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, we're still getting one over on the man. We at least something good. <laughs> at least good come from all of this nonsense that's happening on in the world right now. But anyway, uh, on a serious level, do check out the rest of our content. We're putting out our entire interview with Joe Royal, whose birthday it is today. He's, he's a big fan of the show. Uh, joins us quite often to talk about his time at the club, which is obviously one of a really cherished period for us in the mid-90s, which were quite bleak. It's his birthday today, so uh, in honour of that, we're putting out our diaries of an old lady interview with him, which offers some incredible insight to what happens when he joined the club, uh, when he's talking about his playing years, and, of course, as the series intimates, his favourite memories of Goodison, his top three moments at Goodison. So make sure you check that out. Obviously, he's at the hot mic um, on the Borussia Mönchengladbach game with Matt, uh, Les Roberts and the great Gav Buckland as well. That'll be out some time tonight. Might well be going on now, so you might want to pause this and catch up later. Uh, we're doing stuff every day throughout all of this um, crisis, and when you look at some of the news going on right now, it's quite bleak. So um, hopefully we're continuing to lift your spirits. We're not going anywhere, and we're with you throughout every single minute of this. Our DMs are always open, mine are always open. Get in touch with any of us, and uh, we'll try and help or chat or do whatever you need us to do as best we possibly can. You've been listening to the Blue Room. When you need milk for Zoe and a cold brew or yourself, King Supers Delivery will get you just what you need in as little as 30 minutes. Open the King Supers app and start your cart, whatever the cart. King Supers, fresh for everyone. Delivery time's not guaranteed. Restrictions may apply. See site for details. When you're a Boost member, you get free delivery, double fuel points, and lots more. Sign up at kingsupers.com slash boost. Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.